Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. chapter 8 verse 1 so don't get scared just this verse 1 in chapter 8 all right to get started here uh, tonight kind of a basis that is a little bit of a lengthy reading but I think everybody will be okay and please man we've had visitation today funeral today my wife and I were rode back into Mount Carmel around 4 30 and so it's just been a crazy day so if I happen to say something that sounds weird it probably is and so I'm trying to wipe out all the cobwebs of everything else and, and, and came over here a little early to try to focus my attention in the direction here this evening. But this thing's been put together for two weeks, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> thank the Lord for that. He's working upstream for me there, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, verse number 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Uh, kind of give us a basis here. Jesus has just spoke at the last day of the feast. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And so they are still in this uh, batting back and forth about really the identity of, of this Jesus Christ. So some say of a truth, this is the prophet. All right. Others said this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Have not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. I just looked back there and seen Krista. It's so good to see you, Krista. Amen tonight. Amen. You're not in the hospital and hopefully blood pressure is getting where it is. So good to see you tonight. Amen. That's not in the Bible, but it should be. Uh, but nonetheless, and some of them, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. That's been a reoccurring theme here within this chapter. Then came the officers. Remember, I know it's hard, right? Back a couple weeks ago, remember, uh, Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take the Lord. Well, what you're seeing right here are the officers returning to the chief priests. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why have you not brought him? We sent you forth to take him. Where is he? And they say, the officers answered, never man spake like this man, speaking of Jesus. Then answered them, the Pharisees, are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. They're just, you know, ignoramuses. They're just stupid. They just, they just don't get it. But look what happens here. Somebody hooks back up into the gospel of John that we haven't read much about or any about really since John 3. Nicodemus saith unto them. They're saying, is there any Pharisee that, that believed on Jesus? Then Nicodemus speaks up because he was a Pharisee. He said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him? Said, you bring up the law, let's talk about it. Does our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went to his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. For a little while tonight, I want to talk to you, and my little while is always a joke, but I want to talk to you about a matter of law and grace. A matter of law and grace. 
and, and, and I think it's important tonight because we talk about this. The world talks about it. Everybody talks about it. law and grace. God bless God. We're children of grace. Law and grace are not like two enemies that don't shake hands. Law and grace is not adversaries. Law and grace are complementary to one another. All right? Bible says, plain New Testament scripture, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And bringing us to Christ was bringing us to grace. And so these are not enemies. These are not people that, that's having some duel and they're going to walk 10 paces, turn around and shoot. No, they're complementary to each other. But I think many times, sometimes in the church world and even in society, we pit law and grace against each other. Like it's either one or the other. You got to either have one or the other. Or if you have, if you, you know. But they are friends, all right, in reality. So it's a matter of long grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Father, I thank you here this evening. I thank you, Lord, for the strength that you have given us today. I thank you, O oh Lord Jesus, for, God, you walking before us. And I pray, O oh Lord, tonight you're able to help us, God, in this Bible study. Lord, here on the Gospel of John, open our hearts, our minds, our understanding. God, help us, Lord, consider, Lord God, these two, Lord Jesus, aspects, Lord, of Scripture, Lord, of law and grace. Lord, together tonight, God, for our Bible study, help your people. Lord, order our steps and direct them, Lord, according to your purpose and your word. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Verse 43 of our reading tonight tells us plainly that there was a division among the people because of Jesus. He says in other places of Scripture that he did not come necessarily uh, to bring peace as it were, but he came almost as a sword, that there was going to be a division of people among people. And certainly in John chapter number 7, there are a lot of theories about this Jesus Christ. Each person has their own theory and opinion about him. And as it is or was with Jesus then, so it is with Jesus now. And that is this. There really isn't any middle ground concerning the opinion of the Lord. What I mean is this. You either accept Jesus or you reject Jesus. There's not a gray area middle ground. You're either for him or you are against him. You'll remember maybe even in the Gospels where some of the disciples came to the Lord and said, Lord, uh, this one is doing such and such in your name. And the Lord told them in no uncertain terms, well, if he's not, if he's not against us, then he's for us. In other words, you don't have to go out there and, and carouse him and do anything you know, to him. If he's not working against us, then he is working for us. But people were divided in the gospel concerning the Lord. And people are still primarily uh, divided concerning the Lord still yet today. Some thought him in John 7 to be uh, the prophet, meaning a particular prophet. The Bible spoke in the Old Testament the book of Deuteronomy, Moses spoke that there would be a prophet that would come that would be very similar to himself, like that, that office of being a deliverer. And uh, many thought that perhaps Jesus was that prophet that Moses even spoke of. Yet while some were saying that, there's others that saying that this man is the Christ. And they, quite, they had quite a revelation there because again, through our study, Christ is the anointed one or it's referring to the Messiah, the one that the Jews were waiting for to set all things into order so some are saying he's the prophet others are saying that he's the messiah and others though were of the party and and and, and uh, the grouping of people uh 
because they couldn't seem to reconcile these two things together. They couldn't reconcile that perhaps he was the prophet and the Messiah, that he was the prophet and the Christ. They had problems reconciling the two because according to their understanding, uh, no verses of the Old Testament scriptures spoke or mentioned of Christ or the Messiah coming from Galilee, coming from Galilee. Now, we all, we, we did this about a couple weeks ago. Does anybody know where Jesus was born? Our school kids could even answer this one. And there's silence, and I'm disappointed. No. <laughs> born in Bethlehem, right? Born in Bethlehem. For that matter, stayed in that Bethlehem area until he was about two years old. You remember that the wise men came from afar, and we're not talking about F-I-R-E. This is not Kentucky, King James Version. No, 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 no. She's talking to her kids. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's not just you, sis. I got other Kentuckians in here too, so I just made mention something about Kentucky. But nonetheless, let's get back on track here. Uh, the wise men that came from the east or the magi that came they showed up if you'll remember they came asking Herod uh, at that time that where is he that is born king of the Jews and Herod had to gather together the, the, the chief priest and the scribes and he inquired of them and it's, it's always interesting to me because they asked where is the king of the Jews and Herod asked where did they say that Christ should be born that's amazing to me. But, but nonetheless, uh, where's the King Jews? He says, where, where is Messiah to be born according to, according to the oracles that you all have, have been given, the oracles of God? And the Bible says in Matthew 2, verses 5, is, 5 and 6, that they said unto him, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Verse 6, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel and so we know that this happens Herod learns of this he sends the wise men on and says whenever you learn the exact location if that were to be it where he is and you know that he's there send word back to me I would like to also come and worship <laughs> yeah right we wanted to come and cloak and dagger you know type of scenario and so the Bible says the, 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 the basic story of Jesus' birth is that Joseph was warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus into Egypt because of what Herod had sought to do. Herod sought to destroy Jesus. And with that in mind, he sent people to do a slaughtering in Bethlehem of all those that were two years old and under. Amen. Hoping that that would encompass then Jesus. Jesus being around that two-year-old age whenever the Magi showed up. Uh, so our little nativity scenes of uh, three wise men at a stable with an infant in the stable is really incorrect because Jesus was around two years old when the Magi finally showed up. And that's the reason why Herod had those two and under uh, to be killed. However, whenever the, the Magi left or the wise men left, they did not return, uh, they did not return to Herod and nor did Joseph and Mary and Jesus return to the Judean area whenever they came out of Egypt because they understood that there was still yet someone serving in that Herodian line and they were fearful for their own lives, the life of their child, and so they dwelt in Nazareth. I say all of that tonight to say this. Since Jesus spent a good portion of his years in another city outside of Bethlehem, two years 
as far as what we can ascertain from Scripture, he sent Bethlehem with the majority of his other life, 28 years before his public ministry, uh, being in, you know, Egypt and then Nazareth for the most part. Most people thought that Jesus was from Nazareth. And that was in the region of Galilee. And so that's the reason why they're saying all this stuff. Hey, the Bible, the Scripture never says of anything about a prophet coming out of Galilee. So this can't be the Christ. This can't be the one. We know where he's from. But they forgot where he was born. It's kind of like my wife. A lot of people think that she's from Tennessee. She's not in reality. Her origin is Seattle, Washington. That's where she was born and spent the first eight years of her life. But she grew up a good other portion of her life, yes, in the state of Tennessee. And so people are looking at Jesus and saying, man, he spent all this time in Nazareth. That he's from Galilee. That's what, no. His place, though, of birth and origin was Bethlehem. And so they thought there's no way that this could be taking place. Jesus was born, yes, in Bethlehem, but at best only two years of his life was lived there while the rest, again, was in Egypt or in Nazareth within the region of Galilee. And so they're making this mistake in their minds. This cannot be the prophet. This cannot be uh, uh, the Messiah because he's from Galilee. All right? And so when we look at this a little bit more, and you'll remember, I hope, from a couple weeks back, I mentioned it as we was reading our scripture. Remember, scribes and Pharisees, uh, or chief priests rather, and Pharisees in verse 32, have sent officers to take Jesus. And they come back now in verse 46, and they have not taken Jesus because they say they've never heard a man speak like this man. We talked about, and this is a little rehearsal or a little, uh, re, you know, going over, reiterating some things that we have said in the past few weeks, but it's been some time. He, no one ever spoke like him. What they're alluding to is like he has an authority that's different from any other teacher or rabbi that they have seen before because Jesus doesn't just quote other people. He has an authority in his own words. He comes forward and says stuff sometimes like, I say unto you. I tell you. And that's quite different than the majority of rabbis of his day because they held great confidence in the ability of quoting other rabbis and other people of generations gone by. As a matter of fact, that was a, that was a great mark of a tremendous rabbi. But Jesus comes forward. He don't have to quote anybody else or anybody else's word because John's already told us he's the word that's been made flesh. He says, so I, I say unto you, I tell you, amen. And so his authority is his own. His authority is the spirit, amen, that indwells him, that, that spirit of the Father which indwells him and instructs him. Of course no one's ever going to speak like him. Hallelujah. Because he is God manifest in the flesh. Amen. And so since no other human to these officers, no other man has spoke like this man, it's because this man is not just any ordinary man. This man is just not another man in shoe leather. Amen. And I believe, I'm confident, this is just my personal belief, I believe there was something about Jesus that, that people recognized that, that exceeded just mere humanity. And although sometimes they couldn't quite put a finger on it, it's kind of like even Christendom today. Some people are like, there's something different about you. I can't really, you know, necessarily put the X, Y, and Z on it, but there's something there. And then you start to tell them about your experience with the Lord. And so there's just something notably different about Jesus that people seem to pick up on if they couldn't necessarily lay their finger exactly on it. And so due to these officers' response to Jesus... 
the Pharisees assume that, you know what? You guys just been deceived like everybody else. They said earlier on in the chapter around verse number 12, some cried out that Jesus was this deceiver, quote-unquote. And so they're just saying, you know what? You've been deceived just like everybody else. You've drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. You, 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 you've taken the whole bait and switch, and you're no different than they are. And so to prove that their accusations, to prove their accusation that the officers have been deceived, they ask basically a rhetorical question. They're like, what, what other ruler... Whatever body, who else of a pharisaical type of status have given ear or have believed, you know, that this man is who you all are saying he is. No other Pharisee or ruler have believed upon him. And they're, they're hoping that in the minds of these officers, they're like, yeah, you know, there is no other Pharisee that has said anything. But in reality... When they spoke that question, there's a Pharisee over here in the wings by the name of Nicodemus that we've seen back in John 3 who went to see Jesus, of course, under the cover of night and quite secretly, maybe he felt a little intimidated by the other Pharisees amen, that he had relationships with. But in this moment, when they say nobody else has, no other Pharisee has ever believed on him, Nicodemus raises his voice and, and it kind of emboldens, if you will, his, his uh, approach, his, his uh, allegiance, if you will, unto the Lord as he speaks out for the Lord. Because they sort of cast aside the belief of anyone else because no one else is as well versed in the law as us. We're Pharisees. We know the law frontward and backward, sideways and diagonal ways. We know the law. All these other people, they're just common people. They, re they don't know as much as we do. They're not as proficient in the things of God as we are. So no one else like us would believe because if they had the same knowledge of us, they would just disown and say, yes, he is a deceiver. But Nicodemus knew just as much as they did. He was just as much schooled in the law as they were. And he is intrigued by Jesus. He is impressed by Jesus. He's just as knowledgeable in the law as these other people and Pharisees are. And yet he purposefully, at first secretly, but now purposefully, goes to bat in reality for Jesus because they are bringing up nobody else knows the law like we do and so Nicodemus is thinking okay if you want to talk about the law let's talk about the law you've brought the you brought the ball to the law court you brought it up he says if you want to say something about the law Nicodemus is like then I want to use the law in Jesus's favor because according to the law we should hear what this man has to say According to the law, we should hear Jesus and we should know what he does before we judge him and certainly before we punish him. We should know the manner of person that this is before us. And they are appalled by Nicodemus' response and they bring up this whole idea again. Now, Nicodemus, how foolish can you be to believe that this man is who others are saying he is? No prophet comes out of Galilee. Well, boy... Did they really know their law? Did they really know their history? Did they really know their scriptures, uh, so to speak? There's no prophet that's come out of Galilee. And so they brag about knowing the law. And we've seen this over and over again in John. They brag about knowing the law, but they don't know Jesus. Yet Jesus has told them, and it's true according to God's word, the very law that they said they knew talks about him. 
and yet they don't know him, that kind of gives you a little loophole in how well they knew the law in its entirety. And so when it was all said and done, the Bible says those that sought to take Jesus and had every opportunity have we seen he's made himself public in the temple on more than one occasion they go back to their homes they never lay a hand upon him and the bible says that jesus goes up to the mount of olives now let's dig in just a little deeper here with law and grace the next story that we're going to share here tonight in 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 john chapter number eight is a very familiar story perhaps to most let me start reading in john chapter two and earlier that is verse 2 of John 8. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people. So here he is, public format again. Brother Trout, he's already been in the temple before, right? Some thought they was going to lay hands on him. They didn't, but he's in the temple. He's quite, he's following the will of his father. And the will of his father doing some both things here. He's back in the temple again. Early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes, here we go again, and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law, here we go. Back to the old law game. Remember, had problems because he healed on the Sabbath. Right? Uh, they're, they're talking now about the law. These other people don't know the law. If they knew he'd be... He'd be described as a deceiver so here they are again now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned but what sayest thou this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not so when they continued asking him he lifted up himself and said unto them he that is without sin among you let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even into the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Does anybody know this story? Maybe heard it preached on, taught, maybe read it a gazillion times. I'm telling you today, and this is, you know, through the eyes of, of like uh, biblical critics, uh, the, the, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, they say, is very suspect because it's not found in the earliest of Greek manuscripts and so on and so forth. But it's found oft times from the 4th century on included in the manuscripts. And, and many even believe it was a part of oral tradition before it was ever put down. But most things, even in the Bible of Old Testament, was oral tradition before they were recorded. But nonetheless, if you look at the setting in which it is placed in, it ties in quite nicely where it is with all the other surrounding texts here, in my opinion. Because the focus in the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery is still on trying to trap or convict Jesus in some way. And there's still yet this major emphasis that the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody is having on the law. As a matter of fact, the whole story of the woman caught in adultery is about this, whether Jesus is going to uphold the law or not. It's really what it comes down to. 
Because he already heals on the Sabbath, which they don't approve of. And now, and now, they're asking themselves, will he suggest anything else concerning this woman outside of the scope of the law? What's he going to do different than the law in this moment? They're looking for a way just to put him in the slammer, you know, accuse him. They're looking for it. And so Jesus, though, is so confident. This is the way his walk is. He's so confident that nothing's going to happen to him because his time's not yet. And so here we are. He's in the temple again. He's teaching again. Many are seeking him. He has bold confidence in the Spirit. Nicodemus has already talked about the law, giving a person the benefit of the doubt, you know, first hearing them out knowing the person and so perhaps the Pharisees thought we'll just we'll just see what happens here we'll see if we can ensnare Jesus by him mishandling the law or misinterpreting the law and so they bring this is important they bring to Jesus a person who requires a judgment they bring to Jesus a person who requires a judgment and according to them they say that they caught this woman in the very act of adultery. And they know that according to the Old Testament law of Moses, that it says that such a one should be stoned. Now, folks, there's something about the culture of this time. Uh, the culture of this time, there were three things that they esteemed as some of the most horrid sins, adultery being one of them, idolatry being another one, and murder being another one. But these sins in particular, these folks of this culture did not look too kindly upon at all. And we do have Old Testament precedents on how a matter was to be handled if there was adultery being the situation. The Bible says in Leviticus 20 and verse number 10, and the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death i know you all probably heard some of this stuff a thousand times already in your lifetime but nonetheless there's something very suspicious here about the old testament law of leviticus because it says the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death what's suspicious about this is this they said they caught this woman that committed adultery in the very act. The old saying is it takes two to tangle. All right. There must have been an adulterer, an adulteress, but there's only the adulteress that's brought in the presence of the Lord. The Old Testament, the law of Moses says both should die but we only have the female that's in the presence of the Lord that they're saying, according to the law of Moses, should be put to death. So if they caught this woman in the very act, folks, my mind, your mind probably tells you there must have been some male participant that should be brought as well. And so we must start to think this then, Sister Sheila. Are they equal opportunists when it comes to their law? Hmm? They're, they're boasting about this law all the time. Now they're supposed to follow the letter law, do this according to the law, and yet we only have the female gender here in this whole scenario that was caught in the very act. So is their implementation of the law equal for all? Hmm, someone say amen. Uh, this is just a side note. But we got to be careful 
that what we want to apply to somebody else's life is just as applicable for our own life. Mm -hmm. uh, glory. And we're dealing with a time and a culture, of course, that honestly, women were, women were more so considered in Greek culture, property more so than an individual or a person. All right, and so we're dealing with that, that, that we're, we're fighting against here, but is it, is it an equal opportunity for all? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22 tonight, if a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman, the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed into a husband still considered adultery, Mind you, this is here because whenever a person became betrothed or engaged, if they were unfaithful in that moment or if they started having wandering eyes, for them, that was considered adultery in that day because engagement was as good as the deed done except for consummating the marriage and the adults understand what I'm talking about. Okay? And so, and if a man, verse 23, a man find her in the city and lie with her, verse 24, then ye shall bring them both out of the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife. So thou shalt put away evil from among you. So yes, again, it's underscoring the fact that both parties, male and female, should meet death. Stoning was a viable punishment for adultery. I even read some places that some Jewish writings also mentioned that strangulation was also an option, amen, for adultery situations. Nonetheless, uh, let's just get real for one another. Stoning sounds like an excellent idea until you're the one going to be stoned. Oh, folks. Doesn't it seem like the punishment always equals the crime unless you're the one doing the crime? I mean, on this side of the fence, yes, stone the bloody woman, you know, all that. But what if you were the woman? What if you had a moment of indiscretion? It's like this kind of, like the snow, just let it kind of, the, the water eke into the soil here. Amen. And so, you know, what we have here is a study in authority, and we've looked at this. We've already noted some differences in the authority between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that of Jesus, but let's consider their authority whenever it comes to mistakes. What type of power will the Pharisees, Sadducees, and these exercise compared to what Jesus will exercise when it comes to mistakes? Someone hear me right now. Because the scribes and the Pharisees lean on the law. That's the reason why they brought it up to Jesus. Moses and the law says. The authority that they wish to wield concerning the law is cut and dry. She's done wrong. She should be punished. Right? You know, the old grandmas used to say, you do the crime, you do the time. Right? Amen. You, 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 you're going to do the wrong, you should be punished. Cut and try, dry. But they come to Jesus. And they ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to say? They're wanting to trap him. They're wanting him to step outside of what the law of Moses would prescribe. They're wanting to trap him. Now notice, listen, Jesus never, never said that the law didn't say that. 
Not once does he say, the law doesn't say that an adulterer shouldn't be stoned. No, 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 no. He never refutes what the law said. You've heard this before, folks, but we need to bring it to our attention again. His only little, uh, you know, side note was this. He wants to qualify the stoners. He never said, no, the law doesn't say that. He just wants to qualify the stoners. In verse 7 of John 8, he says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Verse 10 tells us that these men are her accusers. All right? Verse 6 has told us that they are wanting to accuse him. Look what we have going on here. They are her accusers and they want to accuse him. They are wanting to be strong in this accusing row. But watch very quickly because as Jesus deals with them, her accusers, concerning this woman, he's really in a roundabout way trying to deal with them how they're going to handle him. Being his accusers. But they really didn't get it because if you look at the last verse of this chapter, John 8 and verse 59, notice what the Bible says. Then they took up what? Stones to cast at him. The him is Jesus. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted to cast stones at the woman. They wanted to cast stones at Jesus. They were her accusers. They are his accusers. Folks... Yeah, I'll tell you what, be careful whenever you walk around Jerusalem in Jesus' day. It's almost like these folks walked around with stones in their hands. Just looking for an opportunity to throw them. Sometimes even trying to invent an opportunity to flex their lawful authority, if you will, and accuse somebody of wrongdoing. Let me tell you, it is a sad shape to walk around in life with stones in your hands. It's a sad thing in life just looking for someone's next mistake. It, it, it's a sad way to live, to live beyond, behind the microscope and always be looking at the details of people's life just to see if there's an indiscretion, just to see if there's a slip-up, a mistake, a cold heart, then just walking around with stones so that you can flex your authority. Oh, someone hear me tonight. Amen. Jesus, on the other hand, what does the Bible tell us? Even the gospel. He's come to seek and save what? That which was lost. Listen. And I'm telling you, when Jesus came the first time, he doesn't c come to condemn. He told us this already in John. He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He doesn't come to condemn, but he loves them. When he came the first time, with hopes that they'll believe upon him and not perish. He doesn't want them to perish in their sin. He doesn't want them to perish in their iniquity. He doesn't want them to perish with their mistake. Can I tell you today that Jesus, even right now, he's not coming back at the, as judge until the second time, as, as the one with the strong fist of judgment. Right now, he's still the loving God, the gracious God, the merciful God. He does not want, right now, in today's world and era, he doesn't want, amen, people to die in their sins. He wants people to repent of their sins. He's... What are you saying, Pastor McGee? I'm saying this. Listen to me clearly tonight, folks. Stoning a sinner results in a dead sinner. You hear me? Stoning a sinner results in a dead sinner. But loving a sinner may result in a living saint. If somebody... 
We walk around all day long with stones. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. And rightfully so. It probably is according to the law. But if we're heavy with punishment now, there's no grace later. The only opportunity for grace is now. Punishment's going to come one day. Punishment's going to happen. But we need grace now because you can all day long throw the punishment and have a bunch of dead sinners. But if somebody will love, if somebody will be gracious, you might have some living saints see for these accusers these Pharisees their authority is primarily this it's about flexing their muscle and punishment cut and dry condemnation wrong not right authority punishment but at this stage in Jesus' life, ministry, it's more about understanding or at the very least of endeavoring to reclaim the wrongdoer, the one that made the mistake. The Bible says in John 3, 16, many of you know this, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know what his focus is right now? Not the perishing part, but the everlasting life part. Hmm. For God, verse 17, sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Again, we already looked at this, but let's just regurgitate here for a moment. Us born to the Adamic nature, Adam's nature, we're condemned the moment we're born. We're born into sin. We are condemned. No one has to show up and condemn you because if you are without God, you're already condemned. No one has to condemn you. Amen. I don't have to point some bony finger at you and condemn you. We are condemned by our nature. We are condemned by our birth. In my, I was born into iniquity. I was shapen in iniquity, David said. So I am condemned the moment that I'm born in this world. So God didn't send forth, amen, his son. He didn't come down in flesh for the purpose of condemning the world. The world was already condemned. He came down to love the world and try to make amends for the world and a path for the world to get from the place of condemnation to salvation, hoping from being on a path of perishing they would repent and get on the path for everlasting life he wanted that the world through him might be saved this is important in the eyes of Jesus for the times that we're living in right now get this today's mistake doesn't mean it has to be tomorrow's mistake too today's Sin doesn't necessarily interpret that person's future as sin for all eternity. Why? Because, listen, we make flub-ups and mistakes, and what Jesus is holding on to, what God is endeavoring right now, is as long as I've not come back yet, there's possibility for change. There's possibility for alteration. So it's like this. Their mistake today is not the last nail in the coffin because they still got time. Their flub up today, it doesn't have to be their seal for life because they still have time. 
for repentance and making things right. But the differences of the approaches of the Pharisees and, 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 and the chief priests over here in Jesus, how they approach it are two different ways. And it basically boils down to, to these two questions. The Pharisees and the chief priests on one hand are like this, looking at this woman, what can we do to her? Huh? She's made her mistake. According to the law, she's made her mistake. It's punishable. What can we do to her? But on this other side concerning Jesus, he's looking at the same woman. Same mistake. And the question that's coming forth in his mind is this. What can we do to help her? One saying, what can we do to her? The other is saying, what can we do to help her? Because over here, it's like what's done today. There is no time. There is, there, is, there, is, there, there, there is no window for anything to alter or change. But over here, he's like, I'm here right now. I still got to go away and come again. It's not over till it's over. She could leave this walk right here in time and that just be a little blip on the radar where she made a mistake, but she can correct her steps and order her life in a different direction. So what can I do to help her to get where she is to where she really needs to be? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not going to punish her prematurely because this thing ain't over yet. I'm here to tell somebody. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. I'm here to tell somebody today that's been living shackled by mistakes and living shackled by your past and living shackled by some sin that says I just might as well throw them the towel. It's over. I'm telling you, it's not over yet. God is a long-suffering God. He's forbearing. He's not come back yet. And while others are saying, what can we do to them? God is saying, how can I help them? Hallelujah. When all the accusers left, and they didn't, they didn't meet Jesus' qualification that the one that has no sin, let him be the first to cast the stone. No one was left there. Everybody's dropping their rocks, their stones. The only one that's left is Jesus. He says to her in verse 11, where's your, you know, where's your accusers? Any man can, you know, is any man condemn you? No, man, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go. Now, this right here is a plain picture that Jesus isn't justifying mistaken sin. But what he is doing is providing time understanding, and the ability for change. He says, neither do I condemn thee. I'm not going to condemn you. Why? She's already condemned. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like beating a dead horse. If it's already dead, why in the world are you going to shoot it five more times? You understand what I'm saying? It's dead already. She says, neither do I condemn thee. He says, but go and sin no more. Watch this. So Jesus refuses to stone her. That was not a slap in the face toward the law. You hear me? Him refusing to stone her 
was not a slap in the face to the law, the law of Moses that said if one did such a thing, then she should be stoned. That wasn't a slap in the face of the law. What it was is this. It was an answer that the law in and of itself could not offer the woman. Because the law can never offer grace. The law can never offer mercy. Its only ability is to offer punishment. So what he was given in that moment was an answer that the law could not give. He wanted her to leave. Look at this. And go and sin no more. I want you to leave not in the same state as you came here. I don't want you to leave as a sinner. I want you to leave as a no more sinner. <laughs> I want you to leave as a no more sinner. Now look, the, the, the only, time, only time that would reveal whether she kept this command, uh, listen, as time would go on and she would live her life, only the life that she would live after that moment would give any credence to whether she took the, the, the uh, uh, suggestion that she took the command of the Lord and go and sin no more, or if she remained in her life the practice of an adulterer. Only time would tell us that, all right, whether she kept the command of the Lord or not. But that, listen to me very clearly tonight, folks, that is exactly what grace provides. Grace provides you a chance. Mm -hmm, someone say amen. Romans 3, I know, I got to move it. Romans 3 and verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Let's stop right here and just take in consideration right here. This is what the law, this is the purpose of the law. All those that are under the law, this is the law. The law is present within the Old Testament, lingering into the New Testament. The law is there. Again, I'm saying grace and law are friends. They're not enemies. They're not punishing one another. The law is there so that the world as we know it may be guilty before God. <gasps> oh, yeah, absolutely. Without law, you have no knowledge of sin. Mm -hmm. Logan, you get your license one of these days and you start running down the road, you know, on the interstate, 85 miles per hour. You're going to get pulled over. Because there were plainly posted there on the interstate that the speed limit was 70. You sinner. You broke the law. And they can tell you that you did because there was a law that stated it was 70 miles an hour. If there was never a sign on the interstate, there was never a standard. Someone might say, well, going 85 is too fast. Well, what do they got to base it on? Going 40 is too slow. What do they got it to base on? But whenever we got the law, the law provided a standard that when we went beyond it, it made us guilty. If there was never a law, we would live life by the seat of our pants, do ever whatever we want to do, and nobody's necessarily wrong and nobody's necessarily right because there would be nothing to substantiate whether what was wrong or right. But with the law, the law says this is where the line is. 
And if we're on this side, then it's such and such on that side. The law then gave us a, a, an accountability. All right? And because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then the law came to provide that the entire world, everybody say, that's me. Oh, it's me. We're all guilty before God. Look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. You hear me? The law can't justify you. The law's not going to say, it's all okay. No, the law's going to tell you, wrong, not okay, sinner. Ah, ah, ah. Right? It's coming with its heavy hammer of punishment. No flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what I just talked about. Since there is a law present, we know this wrongness or rightness because we have a law. We have the 70 mile per hour sign on the interstate, Logan. Remember that. If he gets a ticket soon after he gets a license, we're going to remember this day quite well. The law reveals sin. It brings about a knowledge of sin. The law leaves us as the adulteress guilty before God. Unable to be justified. I'm running there, folks. I really am. Romans 3, starting back up now with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, look at this now. Being justified. Now remember, the law couldn't do that. You hear me? The law couldn't do that. But this says, being justified freely, by his grace. Law says guilty. Grace has the ability of saying not guilty. Oh God. <laughs> the law can't justify. But grace, you can be justified freely by his grace. Through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation. That's a fancy word. It means that he's the one that pacified the anger of God. God's, God's not happy about sin. No, never will be, never has been. He's not happy about sin. According to the law, sin needs punished. That's what the law says, right? That's what all these Pharisees and stuff are saying. Need punished. And what Jesus says, God says, I'll come down in the flesh of a human being. I'll come down in the flesh of the human being. And the handwritings of the ordinances that were against them. You know what those are? All the laws of punishment. The handwritings of the ordinances that were against them. I'll come down in human flesh and I'll take their punishment. I'll take their punishment. And whenever I take their punishment, I can justify them as being not guilty. Because they need something. There has to be something in place to appease the anger. There has to be something in the place to appease the law, to take care of the punishment side. And if we leave them alone, their guilty is charged and punishment's coming their way. He says, but I'm going to come down and I'm going to take on flesh just like they have. 
Woo! I'm going to become a part of the human family and they're going to stretch me wide and hang me high and I'm going to be up there and I'm going to become sin for the world. Why? Because I'm going to take the punishment upon me so I can give grace unto them. I'm going to become the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Oh, somebody hear me right now. Grace and the law are not enemies. Yes, we needed to be found guilty before God, but God manifested in the flesh came down as our sacrifice so he could also extend grace to humanity and what? Give us more time. Give us a second chance or even more properly said, give us another chance. Someone say amen. Jesus will fulfill the law in his death. I didn't finish reading, did I? Verse 25, I'm so sorry. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions or the removal of sins that are past through what? Look at this, the forbearance. That's the long suffering. That's the patience. That's the time through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So Jesus is going, this is, this is New Testament scripture. I didn't come to do away with the law. Came to fulfill it. They come to do away with it. Again, Jesus didn't say anything about, yeah, the law doesn't say that she, should, she shouldn't be. He doesn't say none of that. He doesn't say anything about the law. He come to fulfill the law. God is a just God today, folks. Because the law was carried out in the execution of Jesus which was for the sins of the world. Stand with me and you'll help me get to a close. Oh, help me, Jesus. I need to get there. All are justified in Christ Jesus. All are justified in Christ Jesus because he took upon himself the punishment of the law. What he does in doing that is then extending grace and mercy to you and I. Again, anybody... Anybody without God, they're condemned. That is, that is our entrance into the world. They're condemned. So it was so foolish for a Pharisee to condemn somebody already condemned. Instead, the law. They were, they were trying to use the law, Sister Grace, how appropriate. They were using the law to try to condemn people. But people were already condemned. Listen to me very closely. The purpose of the law shouldn't be for condemnation. Watch me right here. The purpose of the law should be for conviction. It should be for conviction. The Bible says in Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster. That brings us to the Christ. You know what the law does? It leaves me in the shape. Oh, I should, I should be punished. I've done so wrong. I'm guilty before God. You know what that means? I need a savior. Yeah. I'm guilty. The blood's on my hands. You know what I need? I need a savior. I need someone to go to my defense. Thank God for the law. Thank God. I need to feel that guilt. But just as much as I feel that guilt in the moment of my repentance and my surrender to God, I need to feel that burden. Whew. The old hymn we used to sing is, love lifted me 
<laughs> when nothing else, amen, could help. Love lifted me. And so what happens is grace, not her, but grace provides the opportunity, the time for the conversion. You either, as Jesus said, go sin no more, or you continue in your sin. That's what grace provides. It provides opportunity for the conversion. It gives us a chance and an opportunity for change. Folks, that's one of the roles of Jesus until he comes back again. Again, the first time as Savior and servant, but the next time as King and Judge, he's given us an opportunity for change. Look what the Bible says, and I'm closing. I really am. I'm so sorry. 1 Corinthians 4, verse, I'm really not sorry. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 through 5. What's amazing here is what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of John. Look, what he's doing in the Gospel of John, he's really setting up the people for his whole purpose of Calvary. He's kind of foreshadowing what the whole purpose of Calvary is before he ever hung up on the tree. Through his response to this woman caught in the act of adultery. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Okay, let's go. For I know nothing by myself, the Apostle Paul says. Yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Verse 5. Therefore, this is important. Judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. And what Paul was conveying to the Corinthians, and they were a very immoral church. Paul was conveying to the Corinthians saying basically this. We can't bring the verdict ultimately in until it's the end. What are you saying? Paul's saying, as long as the Lord hasn't come back yet, a sinner today might not be a sinner tomorrow. <sighs> Folks, listen to me. That flows two directions. A saint today may not be a saint tomorrow either. But in the end, God will reveal all hidden things, all the counsels of the heart that no one sees or knows. He'll bring it all. But until that moment of final judgment, he's a gracious God providing opportunity for change. So when we say it's never too late, we're saying while we're living this life, before the trump of God sounds, it's never too late because you got grace, an opportunity for change. And if you're holding around and heavy underneath a burden of guilt, you need to come to the Lord and be like hopefully the adulterous woman was when you leave, go, and sin no. It's such a wonderful, wonderful marriage of law and of grace. Can we bow our heads all across here? And I'll try to wrap it up here with a prayer for us tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, we all walk a road. God, that I believe. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.